Well, good morning, friends. I want to welcome those that are joining us in Edgewood and online. Obviously, you hear an announcement like that, and there's about a thousand questions go through your mind. And I would just tell you, we don't have the answers to any of them. Um, and so uh, we, we just ask you to join us in prayer. Obviously, ask those questions. If we have an answer, we'll give you one. At this particular point, we have no plans um, that are shaping up. Like we, we really are at ground zero, and we're just going to take our time and entrust the Lord with all of that. Um, and so that's, that's the news, and we're excited about it. Also a little nervous uh, because having two campuses is already challenging, and so trying to figure out what the future holds is just trusting it all to the Lord. Um, if you've got your Bibles, turn with it to Romans chapter 10. Uh, we are beginning Romans chapter 10 and uh, continuing our series called Romans, uh, the revealing of the righteousness of God. And thus far in our journey, um, not only has it been long, uh, but it's also been so insightful and so good. And as we come to this particular place, Paul is beginning his thought here, which we see in our Bibles as chapter 10. But before there were chapters and verses, it was just a letter. And so Paul is moving and building on a thought that in chapter 9 he had for a group of people he loved. Namely, his own people, which were the Jews. Um, And as he builds the case there, he wants them to see the free gift of God's sovereign kindness towards them. Now, when I think about God's gift of kindness, we see it and manifest itself in lots of different ways. And I can't help but uh, but think about a guy uh, named Walter White Jr. Um, Walter White Jr. was a guy who was um, a mechanical engineer, worked on planes, uh, had his own um, little Beechcraft two-engine plane that he was flying when it went down uh, over the Bahamas in Calsal Banks on December 5th of 1986. Uh, when it went down, it was just before dusk, and uh, his plane quickly dissipated in the water, and somehow he was still alive. In a t-shirt, shorts, and tennis shoes with cuts and scrapes on his body, he was floating in the, uh, the, the Bahamas with a half-inflated um, half vest and life jacket uh, that didn't work properly. He had a handful of flares that he had gathered, but upon moisture and water, he realized they wouldn't work. And so here it is in the Bahamas. He is floating and trying to keep himself alive after a very uh, impactful crash. Within uh, about 30 minutes of being in the water, he has his first shark encounter. Every wave that's produced is bringing about blood from his body. And as his blood goes downstream, here come sharks with the scent and with blood on their minds. The very first one approaches and he's able to give the shark a swift kick in his head. And then there it is, for a few more moments, he has freedom. But for the next 16 hours, he would actually encounter shark after shark after shark. When interviewed afterwards, he said, I saw shark of every kind, big and small. He said, I saw the ones that you don't fear and the ones you fear. And he goes, and somehow I managed to stay alive. After 16 hours, uh, Coast Guard actually sent out a helicopter. They weren't actually looking for him. They were looking for the wreckage. They didn't believe he was still alive. Actually, they didn't even leave uh, at the break of dawn. They waited a couple of hours because they just assumed he was dead. When they find him bobbing up and down in the ocean, they quickly call for a Coast Guard ship to come on its way. When they get over the top of him, they actually saw a 15-foot shark hovering within 60 foot of him. 
his lifeless body uh, just barely keeping on. Uh, eventually, there's a ship that comes, and, and when they get there, he's able to manage to have the strength to come up the ladder. And when interviewed, they ask him, well, what did you do when you finally hit the deck? And he said, I kissed the deck of the ship. And then he said, and I got the first Coast Guard person, and he said, and I kissed them too. And then he said, my lifeless body just fell, and he figured I would be dead within the next two hours. A month later, He's interviewed, and uh, he shares the, the recounting of his, tour, uh, his, of his tale and, uh, and ultimately would say, it is not by anything I did, although I kicked a lot of sharks. <laughs> he said, it was simply by the grace of God. Amen. And really what he's talking about in his experience in the ocean is really what Paul is trying to help the Jew understand in Rome. That it's not based off of what we've done or not done, but it's simply based off the gift of God that you and I could know God at all. And that's where he's picking up in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. As he says these words, brothers, and as he uses the word brothers, he's talking about his own people. The people that he referred to in Romans chapter 9 that he would say were the Jews, the, his fellow brothers in Israel, the ones that had um, the law, the prophets, who understood the Shekinah glory of God, the ones who had... Um, the temple and sacrifice and all that. He goes, brothers, he goes, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Them, namely, is speaking of Israel, the Jew. He goes, my heart, my prayer, my, my focus in writing this letter is that, is that many of the Jews would come to saving grace and the knowledge of Christ. And so as he gives kind of a periscope in this letter, as he continues the thought from Romans 9 to 10, he goes, my concern is that my fellow Israelites would have salvation. Now, the fellow uh, Israelites are the very ones that we talked about the last couple of weeks that God in many ways has given them consequences. And as a result of the consequences of Israel, Paul is helping them realize that he has taken them and put them on the bench just like he would a starting quarterback. And so the starting quarterback is on the bench because he's not coachable, he's not teachable. And, and so Paul goes, it's you that you don't understand what God's doing in this day and time. And then he unpacks that a bit in verse 2 and 3. But what's interesting is, is that you might ask the question, well, why did God put Israel on the bench? What did they do? What was the problem that Israel had that God would see fit to remove his blessing from them for a time? In Romans chapter 9, the latter part of it, we'll just go back. So if you got your Bible, go back a page. Uh, it just says this in verse 32 and 33. The, the question is, is why? Like, hey, why did this occur? And then Paul answers his own question. He says, because they did not, Israel, they did not pursue it by faith. What? Salvation. They didn't pursue, pursue salvation by faith. But as if it were based on works. And then he goes on. He says, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And what Paul is doing there is quoting an Old Testament passage, but he's also giving the Jew imagery of what it would be like for a building to be taken place in that day. Now listen, they would build buildings out of stones, but how many stones would it take? It would take hundreds of stones, if not thousands of stones. And what would happen is, is they were building these uh, different structures. They would take stones and they would lay them out. But how long would it take to build a building? A few weeks? 
a few months. No, it would take years at times. And as they were doing these different things, could you imagine the grass growing up over the stones? And as they're walking by the path, all of a sudden they just trip on a stone. A stone can be a stumbling block, right? Because you don't see it. Well, that's what Paul is helping the people of Rome understand. Jesus is a stumbling stone. Friends, Jesus is offensive. We look at Jesus and we go, man, why can't we love like Jesus loved? Absolutely, Jesus loved. But friends, I also want you to understand that if you, if you track Jesus in his ministry, not only was he loving, but there came a point where he would draw a line in the sand and he would say, hey, it's time to follow me. It's time to deny yourself, to take up the cross to your death and follow me. And so for the Jews, what, G, uh, what, what Paul is saying to them, he goes, listen, this guy, Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, he goes, He's become a stumbling block for me. You guys are tripping yourself up over this guy. You guys are having a hard time seeing who he is, and you're having a more difficult time even following him. And the question is, is why? Well, Paul says it's because you're putting your faith in yourself and your own righteousness as opposed to the righteousness that comes by faith through Jesus Christ. And so that is the, really the dilemma that's talk, uh, being talked about here by Paul. Paul says there's a great dilemma. The dilemma is, is that you've got righteousness of your own. And what is the righteousness that the Jew had? Well, one is that they were a Jew. And because they were a Jew, they were already God's elect and chosen, and they were the precious ones on the earth. And so they already felt like they had a way to God that no other person on earth had. Hey, you're a Moabite? Oh, no way you're getting to God. Amorite? Philistine? Oh, no way. American? Oh, you don't have a chance. We're the Jews. And so they found themselves looking at their own righteousness. Their works done by the law, the way they kept the Ten Commandments, the way they kept the 613 other laws that had been made, civil, religious, ceremonial. All of these things came into play. And at the end of the day, they would look at the mirror and they would say, Look at me. I'm a Jew. I got my life together. I keep all these rules. On the flip side, there's another guy who over here is of, of, of no comely appearance. He doesn't look the part. He's not the, uh, the zealous leader that, that Israel was looking for. He was a man who was of, of comely appearance and ultimately who has said, I, I, I didn't come to, to, uh, to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This guy named Jesus also had, a, had, had righteousness. Why? Because Hebrews 4.15 says he had been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. And because he is our high priest and both our sacrifice, he came and he willingly subjected himself to everything that you and I would experience. He subjected himself to temptation, to pain, to torment, to hunger, to thirst, to sadness and sorrow. The only difference is Based off of his righteousness, he never did anything wrong. Now, see, a Jew couldn't claim that. A Jew oftentimes would make a mistake, but they would work really hard to correct it. Uh, just a few moments ago, as we were on stage, um, the guy in the middle, Charlie McMath, uh, one of our elders, went to Israel. And as we were talking about that, he goes, you know, it's crazy that on the Sabbath, he goes, the Jews couldn't even touch an elevator button because, because that would be working on the Sabbath. And I'm like, isn't that crazy? Could you imagine today not being able to go home and, and just fire up the weed eater for 10 minutes because you would be working and breaking the law? Could you imagine trying to keep all of those things based off of your righteousness? And Paul goes, listen, 
that's a challenge for you. Because if it's based off of you, you're surely going to fall. But if it's based off of Him, the one who's righteous and perfect, and even though He was tempted, and even though He was tormented, and even though He suffered greatly, He never sinned. If your righteousness based by faith is on Him, then He goes, that can be a life changer. And so that's Paul's point. That's what he wanted them to understand. Righteousness based off of you is going to fall short. Righteousness based on Christ will, will always measure up. Matter of fact, one of the greatest examples that we have in all the Scripture as to the kindness of God and His salvation is to Jesus and the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross, bound by His hands and by His feet. The thief on the cross did not have hands to go about doing work. He didn't have feet that could be unattached, that he could go and run errands for the Lord. Can you imagine being the thief on the cross, not only knowing that you're a guilty criminal, charged correctly, hanging on the cross like all criminals do in Rome, but yet also knowing there's nothing that you can do in this humble place. You're naked, you're broken, you're, you're disoriented, and then all this this moment, it all becomes clear as you recognize that the Messiah and the Savior of the world is hanging next to you and you go, I can do nothing with my hands or my feet. There are no works for me to accomplish. When you hear the words from Jesus that says, friend, today you can be with me in paradise. See, friends, we grow up in, in this church culture that oftentimes encourages us to keep working. Hey, keep doing stuff. Try, try to have it together. Hey, if you can stop doing this and then add this, if you can stop doing this and add this, then at some point you're going to arrive. And listen, friends, that's not the gospel. That's not the good news that Paul is trying to convince his Jewish brothers of. And so that's what his message is. Matter of fact, he goes on in verse 2. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He goes, They are zealous. He goes, you can take that to the bank. They do way more than we ever will. Matter of fact, I talk to people all the time about Scripture memory. Like, oh, no, I just I don't have it in me, you know. Um, I've just lost too many brain cells over the years. And then we make excuses, right? It's like, I, I just don't have the discipline. I just can't do it. I've tried, and I can't. I can't even read the Bible every day. I'm just really struggling. But listen, the Jew, namely that of the Pharisee, or the uh, Sadducee, or one of the religious leaders, they memorized the entire Torah. That would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They didn't just have the law down. They had all 613 commands. They knew them all. They memorized them. They were zealous. As far as zeal, Paul goes, you have it. He goes, but not according to knowledge. So what he's saying is, he goes, look, you can always be sincere, but still be sincerely wrong. And that's what he's telling the Jew. He goes, look, I look at you, and he goes, and you're putting your faith in the wrong place. You're sincere while doing it, but if you're wrong, if your knowledge is off base, he goes, it's all for nothing. And that was his message to his brothers. Now, Paul knew something about that. Paul knew what it was like to be zealous. Paul knew what it was like to be sincere in his worship. And Paul actually admits that he also knew what it's like to be wrong. Paul, in Acts chapter 22, recounts the story when he was actually mobbed and beaten, and he was brought before um, a group of people, and he recounts the story of what happened um, 
to them. And he tells them who he is, and he also recounts the story of what happened in his life to change something for him. In Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 3, this is what Paul says as he finds himself brought before the people who want to kill him after he's been arrested. Look what he says to them. He says, I am a Jew. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. I was brought up in this city. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, which was a great teacher of the law, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. See it? Underline it. As all of you are this day. He says, I persecuted the way to the death, which the way was Christians. I, I was binding and delivering uh, to prison both men and women. As to the high priest and the whole council, the elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were, with, uh, who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He goes, I was zealous. I was so zealous that anybody who followed this Jesus, the, the members of the way, he goes, I confiscated them. I bound them, both men, men and women. He goes, and I found it as a pleasure to carry them to Jerusalem. He would tell you later in that same passage, he goes, when on the way to Damascus, he says, I had an encounter. That encounter is also outlined in Acts chapter 9. But he said, I had a bright light that shone around me. He says, I was blinded. And then he recounts saying, and then there was a voice from heaven that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And which then he replied, who are you, Lord? And the response was from heaven. This is Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. Now, we know that he was blinded, and for three days, I eventually met up with Ananias, and he could see. But this man was zealous. He was a Pharisee. He was of strict nature to all that he had observed. Matter of fact, if you want to read more about that, you just make you a note and go read Philippians 3, verses 2 through 11. He outlines that even more. But Paul says, look, I understand zealousness. I get it. But he goes, the deal is, is that if you're zealous and you're wrong, that doesn't make you smart. It makes you ignorant. And that's what he says in verse 3. Look what Paul says. He says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So here it is. He says, the Jews in that day were knowledgeable. He says they were zealous. But he says they were also off-based. They were ignorant. So he goes, it, it, it's not a good combination if you're zealous and off-based. It doesn't uh, go well for you if, if in all of your worship, and all your sincerity, you're wrong. And he said in this particular case, they chose not to submit themselves to the righteousness of God. Paul says, I've been there too. Matter of fact, in his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, look what Paul says as he writes to his child in the faith, Timothy. Look what he says about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Paul begins, he says, I thank him, meaning Christ, who's given me strength, which is Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. But look what he says in verse 13. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent. He says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. He goes, I don't know how it happened. He goes, I was a murderer. In my zealousness, I did anything for Yahweh, the God of Israel. I denied his son, the Savior, and I killed men and women. 
I was a, it was a pleasure to see Stephen stoned to death. It was a pleasure to be an insolent opponent. He goes, I was ignorant though. I knew no better. And because of my ignorance, God saw fit to show me kindness. Now, isn't that an amazing thing? That you could be so sincerely moved in this direction that then God meets you in his loving kindness and he redirects your steps. Paul said, I experienced that. Now listen, I want you to realize that Paul also will acknowledge that he suffered greatly because he caused great suffering. Paul was a suffering servant. Paul understood what it was like to to have challenges in life. And the reason why is because he said, it was by grace through faith that Christ saved me. But when he saved me, I was yoked to him and I would suffer and I would serve to the death because I caused so much suffering and death. Paul says, that's my lot. I am to serve him. And my desire is that I, my kinsmen, my brothers would see that. Paul even said in Romans 9, I would be fine to be cut off from the kindness of God that my fellow Jew would come to salvation, found not in their own merit or righteousness or strength, but in the kindness and the righteousness of God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul desired. And the reason Paul desired that, because Paul knew that the law was not meant to bring life and freedom. It wasn't meant to bring righteousness. The, the law isn't meant to, to, to cause us to boast, but that's what the Jew did. The, the, the Jew started and said, look, we've got the law on Sinai from Moses. Isn't that amazing? God etched it in stone for us. Then the, the Jew began to try to keep the law, and the more they kept the law, the more they would look in the mirror, and they would go, hey, look at me. Look who I am. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, I'm from the tribe of of Judah. Oh, I'm from the tribe of Dan. Oh, I'm from the tribe of Naphtali. All of them just bragging about their own rights. Look at who we are. And God says, you're finding your righteousness in and of yourself. Righteousness cannot be found there because you will break the law eventually. And, And what really I believe Paul wanted the Jew to realize is that the law was not meant to bring righteousness, but actually to bring despair, to bring a broken heart. That when you didn't honor your father and mother, that you would be convicted. And you would say, man, I really missed it there. That when you coveted your neighbor's things, that there would be something in your soul that was unsettled. And you would say, man, I am off base. And what happened with the Jew is the more they kept the law, the more they were puffed up and arrogant and more conceited in and of their self. But the more one who finds hope and righteousness and faith through Jesus Christ, the more you miss it, the more you realize that I have a great need for a Savior. And Paul says that's the contrasting view. It's black and white. He goes, you've got one who feels confident in, them, uh, in themselves. And he goes, and they're missing it in their zealousness and their knowledge and in their ignorance. And he goes, but there is another way that God has paven a great path. As a matter of fact, in verse 4, he tells you how he does it. He says, verse 4, and he makes a shift here in this letter. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who, who believes. And he uses this word, end, that's the word telos, which means a multitude of different things, but really two of its meanings. One is like a termination. You terminate a job, you go, hey man, sorry, but it's over here. Um, it's terminated. And so he uses that word as in termination. But there's another way that you can use it too. And that is uh, the means to an end. For instance, the fulfillment of something. And so Paul actually uses this word. And he says, Christ is the termination of the law 
But he doesn't stop there. He uses the other meaning as well, which means that he is also the fulfillment of the law. You remember the words of Jesus, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What did Jesus mean? He didn't mean, I didn't come to abolish the law, so let's keep the law in motion, because that would contradict what Paul was saying. What he's saying is, I didn't come to abolish and just scrap the law, because the law actually does have a great purpose. Paul outlines that to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. He tells you the law is for the lawbreaker. It's for us who can't be righteous. He tells us that clearly. So what's the purpose of the law? The law is to condemn, to bring despair. But Christ goes, I ended that. Why did Christ end the law? Because he says, I also fulfilled it. How did Christ fulfill it? He kept it completely. You dishonor your father and mother? Jesus never did. You covet your neighbor's stuff? Jesus never had that problem. You dishonor God, put other gods before him? Jesus says, nope, not. I'm, I'm obedient to my father. We are one. See it? Jesus fulfills everything that you and I broke. So Christ... Christ is the end of the law. He is the termination of it, and he is the fulfillment of it. Meaning that we would be foolish and off-based if we tried to use the law as a means to righteousness or salvation to God. For instance, here's what I mean. My recommendation, take it for what you want, is that if you have the Ten Commandments in your house and you encourage your kids to keep that every day before they leave, my encouragement would be to rip them down. Okay? Now, if you want to keep the Ten Commandments up as a means at the end of the day to check all the things we missed, <laughs> keep them up. You see it? It can be used for two purposes. You can say, hey, do your best to keep all these things and God will be honored. Or you can say, hey, you're never going to keep these things and you're never going to honor God, but he gave you another way. See the difference? And right now, our churches in America are teaching both. A lot are saying, hey, keep the Ten Commandments up and do your best to keep them. God will be honored. And listen, I would just say, hey, take them down. But if you use them as a means to say, this brings despair and hopelessness. And every time I look at them, I fall short of the glory of God. And I go, God, how in the world could you save me from the sharks that are surrounding me? Sin, despair, lust, fornication, adultery, idols in my life. God, how in the world could you reach down and save me? Only by the loving kindness of God and His Son Jesus who is righteous on your behalf. Paul goes, man, I want that for my Jewish brothers and sisters. And friends, we ought to want that for our neighbors. We, want to, we ought to want that for our friends. Why? Because Paul says we're, we're not bound to this anymore. There's a better way. That's why Paul writes a couple of chapters earlier in Romans chapter 7. Look what he says to the, to the, to the church in Rome. He says in this verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. What does the law do? It binds you. Why? Because you won't measure up. He goes, so that now we serve a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see it? He goes, there's a better way. There's life in the Spirit, not living in your flesh. Now, let me ask you a question. If Christ meets me in my sin by His righteousness through faith, and He saves me, not on the merit of anything that Brandon's done, but just 
out of what Christ has done. And then he says, and now I'm going to make you a new person, a new creation. And I'm going to put my spirit within you. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God, by his spirit, can enable me to now keep the law? Yes. You know why I don't kill somebody? Because God's spirit lives in me. Not because I'm righteous and not because I don't have it in me. You know why my marriage is still intact, even though I'm an idiot? It's because God's spirit lives within me. You see it? It's a new way. Friends, without Christ living in a moral code, we're going to be Moses, an Israelite who murdered an Egyptian out of zealousness. But there's a better way. There's a way that leads to life. And Jesus says, and if you will find it. Why? Because so many of us desire righteousness based off of our own merit. And it's not life-giving. Paul says it enslaves us. But that's why Paul then makes a shift here in this letter. And he, he shows you, hey, here's where you fall short. This is where knowledge and ignorance um, and zealousness will get you if you're not careful. But he goes, look at the better way. Look at the way because Christ fulfilled the law. Verse 5, he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does, not, who does the commandments shall live by them. Really, he's just making it super plain. He goes, look, if you want to fulfill the law, Moses is saying, okay, fulfill it completely. That's great. And that is a path, I guess you could say. If you can keep all the law, then that is a means to salvation. The question you've got to ask is, can I keep all the law? No. So Moses' point when he got the law was to help them live by the, the, the law. He goes on in verse 6 and 7, Paul does, and he says, But the righteous based on faith says, Hey, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ from the dead. What Paul is saying, he goes, It is vain for the Israelites to think that they can accomplish anything in their own purposes. He goes, They do not have the strength to bring Christ down, and they don't have the strength to raise Christ from the dead. He goes, they do not have the ability as Jews to do anything that would ultimately produce the merit of God. He goes, but what they could do is recognize that in the law they fall short unless they keep all of it, and that also the provision of bringing Christ down and raising Christ up has already been accomplished through God. Who was it that sent his son? God. Was it the Jews, namely because they had the promises? No, it was God in his loving kindness. He sent his son to earth. Why? For a provision. The provision saying you and I don't have to work our way to God because God worked his way to us. He goes, you Jews don't control that. God did that. And he goes, and what overcame death, sin, and darkness? He said it was God. On the third day, he rose his son from the grave. It was you Jews didn't have any merit in that. You have no standing with that. It has nothing of your control or value. Even with the promises, he goes, it was all fulfilled by God. That's his point. And then he, he, he says this in verse 9. Look, I'm sorry, in verse 8. He says, so, but what does it say? He said, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, that the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess, which means agree in the Greek. He says, with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
And we read that and we're like, come on, is it really that simple? I mean, honestly, is it? The question is, what are you agreeing with? When Paul says, confess or agree with your mouth, what are you agreeing to? So here it is. As we gather in this body of believers in two different communities, here's what we would agree to. If you and I desire a salvation not based off our own merit, but off the merit of God and his son Jesus, here's what you agree to. It starts with you. It starts with us acknowledging that we are ultimately depraved, that we're sinful. And as we look in the mirror, just like a Jew would have to, instead of boasting in our righteousness and in our accomplishments or our ability to keep a set of rules, it actually just in despair to say, God, I don't measure up. God, I'm a sinner. Does God's word already tell us that no one is righteous, not even one, Romans 3.10? Does God's word already tell us that we're all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23? Does God's word tell us that? So what are you agreeing to? You're agreeing to God's word. You're basically going, hey, God, I believe what you say about me. Well, hold on, I thought God loves us. He does. Well, I, th- I thought I was creating the image of God. You were. Well, then what happened? You got in the way of it. You were born in flesh. You were conceived in iniquity. And because of that, you're separated from a holy and righteous God. And as you look in the mirror, it's just to admit that. God, I'm separated because of me. I've missed it. I continually miss it. God, I've tried so many times to gather up my life, to, to grab the bootstraps of life and, and to really cinch them up tight. I've tried, I've tried recovery programs. God, I've, I've tried New Year's resolutions. Every single time I, I go and buy me a new Bible and I get some new highlighters and I tell myself one more time, I'm going to get it this time. And I just continually fall short. Admit that. Admit, I just continually fall short. I've tried everything and it doesn't work. The law should bring that kind of despair. And when you believe about who you are, now let's turn our belief to God. A God who is perfectly supreme, who's righteous in every way, who's never sinned, who is holy and just, who is perfect, who does love you and in fact created you in his image so that you could be reconciled to him. He sent his son Jesus, who was perfect in every way, never sinned. That means he never thought, said, or did anything that breaks God's law. When's the last time you thought something that broke God's law? When's the last time you thought it and you couldn't hold back that thought? So it means it was expressed. Y'all, y'all got that? Y'all know some people around you that you think, man, they could have some unexpressed thoughts, you know? Jesus never thought, said, or did anything to break God's law. And he measured up. And so the belief is, while I don't measure up, God, thank you that you sent a provision. I believe that Jesus was not only a historical person. I don't just believe that he lived a couple of thousand years ago, but I believe that he was the Son of God, sent as the Messiah of the world to bless all the nations. I believe that he was without sin. I believe that he died on the cross in my place that I was the criminal that should be there, but he offers me a provision and a pardon if I'll accept it. And that because of his grace and kindness and because of his death on the cross, he met the legal demands of God. Everything that needed to be vindicated was vindicated by the wrath of God on his son Jesus that day. And then he died. And when he died, it looked like the enemy had won. It looked like darkness had prevailed. But not on the first day, not on the second But on the third day, he rose again. And when he did, he overcame sin, death, 
darkness, and the grave, and anyone who would believe in him and confess with their mouth could be saved. Wow. That's what it looks like. And do you know that you can have that conversation with God between you and him anywhere on the planet at any time? I've seen guys drop to their knees in a parking lot and do that. I've seen guys at a kitchen table. I've seen guys and gals that were getting married and realized that in the air of their ways that they need it. And I've seen people at my own kitchen table come to faith in Christ. I've seen people come to faith in Christ in drunken stupors. I've seen hundreds, hundreds of stories that if I were to tell you, it would resemble the words of Jesus that you will do greater works than I. All of it celebrating the life change of God because of his provision, which then he says in verse 10, when we admit these things, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It is a partnership of those two things, a belief and an acknowledgement of who you are and a confession that brings about righteousness and salvation all at the same time. It is God's way of bringing forth freedom from despair. Hopelessness found in trying to keep rules and regulations. Grace found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ when you'll come to the end of yourself and you'll accept his free gift. Wow, what a message. A message we should share with everyone. A message that reminds me of freedom. Let me close with just this quick story. Uh, there was a, a woman in the Spanish-American War. Her name was Claire Barton. And during the Spanish-American War, she was serving uh, for what is known as the Red Cross. And while she was serving there, uh, there was a colonel that came in by the name of Theodore Roosevelt. And he was actually looking for some aid for his band of Rough Riders. They had been beaten up and wounded. He came in, uh, even with his own wallet at hand, he was like, listen, ma'am, I am trying to do anything I can for my guys. I need food, I need aid, I need supplies. And she said, and he said, I would like to buy as much as I can. She said, I can't, I'm not selling you anything. He was perplexed. He, he was a little bit frustrated, became agitated. And she was like, he's like, no, I, I'm willing to pay. I, I'm, not, I'm not just trying to put on the government's dime. I got my own money, I'll, I'll pay. And she said, I'm not selling you anything. He was a little bit confused, a little bit distorted, and all at once, someone next to him said, Colonel, you don't buy anything here. He's like, what? It's all free. We're the Red Cross. And all at once, he's taken back. He's like, oh, I got it. And she looked at him, Claire Barton, and was like, now do you understand why I can't sell you anything? It's all free. Take what you need and go. Supply your men. And friends, that's the message that Paul wanted for his fellow brothers and sisters. It's all free. Quit working, quit striving, and find rest in the provision of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what part of this message is for you. Maybe you need to get alone with God and you need to admit and believe in Him. And maybe today is the day of your salvation. We want, we want to celebrate that with you. Maybe today the message is for you just to quit trying to strive. Rest in Christ. Know that he's provided enough for you. Friends, Easter is around the corner. It's more than eggs and bunnies. 
but can we use eggs and bunnies to point people towards Christ? That's our plan. So there's some eggs in the lobby. If this message resonates with your soul, why would you not invite someone to be a part of the greatest Sunday of the year as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ? It's three weeks away. Make plans today to be here. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom that we have in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that the provisions you offer are not for sale. Thank you for the provisions you offer are not based off our merits or works. But Lord, it is like a ladder coming out of heaven, like Jacob was provided, that you offer us grace by faith through your son, Jesus Christ, that if we'll believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that we can have salvation. Lord, I pray today that there would be some people that take you up on that offer today. Father, I pray there would be others of us that we stop striving and we quit trying to find hope in our works. But Lord, that we would find despair when we don't measure up and that that would cause us to turn towards you, the one who is the end of the law, both the termination and the fulfillment, the one who is Jesus Christ, the light of the world and the Savior in which men need to see. We love you and thank you. And it's in your holy, precious, and wonderful name we pray. Amen.